Are you equipped to fully understand the Scriptures? Are you confident in your interpretation? Join us now as Bishop Riggin shares how truth is revealed in Scripture. Are you ready to face the truth? Face the Truth is the weekly podcast from the Truth Church of Olathe, Kansas, with our pastor and Bible teacher, Bishop Gregory Riggin. And so we talked about the tools. So then how do you tie that to the principles, which are fewer than the eight? You cut that number in half, and now you have four principles. So how do you tie the tool set to the principle? Well, let me go through those principles. And I think that as I go through the principles, some of this will become clear as to how the tools then will help you to obey the principles. Principle number one is that the scripture is of no private interpretation. There's no private interpretation. And that's based on 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. The Bible says we have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto ye do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. To me, this is perhaps the most important of the four principles. Because if we don't understand that there's only one true interpretation for Scripture, then we feel legitimized or justified in coming up with our own interpretation. In fact, I've talked to people in the past and tried to share Scripture with them, and then they've said, well, that's your interpretation, but I interpret it differently. And Someone else, you know, we all have our own interpretation. Well, no, Peter made it clear that there is no private interpretation. And the reason there's no private interpretation is because these things were not written through the efforts, the logic, the intellect of man. But they were written as holy men of God were moved by the Holy Ghost. Therefore, the Holy Ghost spoke it. Let's just, again, let's apply logic. I've written some books. If people take one of my books and they say that I am trying to convey a certain message within a book, they take a sentence of mine and they want to twist it. For example, in my book on the Godhead, principle number three is that the flesh is the humanity of Christ. There are those who would take that and say that I'm saying that Jesus Christ was nothing more than a man. Now, we can sit and argue about it. You know, you, you guys can argue with them, and they can say, no, this is what he says, this is what he, this is what he means. But if you really want to know what I meant, you're going to have to talk to the author, and I can explain to you what I meant when I said it. So when we say, well, that's the way you interpret the Scripture, that's the way I interpret it, No, what we've got to do is we've got to go back to the author. And the author is not Paul and Matthew and Mark. The author is the Holy Ghost. We've got to find out what the Holy Ghost meant by the things that were said. And the Holy Ghost doesn't mean 
five or six different things. The things that are spoken by the Holy Ghost, they are truth. They are clear. We can trust what the Holy Ghost says, and we need to know what is meant by that scripture, that passage. What did the Holy Ghost mean when the Holy Ghost moved on these men to write these things? So this is, this is important, and this is why these other tools that I gave you are so important. If there's only one interpretation, now if there's a multitude of interpretations, then it doesn't really matter how we approach it. But if there's only one interpretation, again, we have to have some standard of arriving at what did God mean when this scripture was written. So this is, this is so important that we understand that there is only one interpretation to every scripture. Now, there can be many applications. I like to use the example of David and Goliath, that there's one interpretation of that story, and that is that a young man, with the help of God, brought down a giant. That's the interpretation. It's, it's a literal story. It happened. But we can apply that to so many different things in our life. We can make application to the giants we face, the problems that come at us. And we can make application that just as David trusted God and God helped David conquer the giant in his life, if we'll trust God, God can help us conquer the giants in our life. But that's an application, not an interpretation. So there can be many, many applications of Scripture, but there's always only one interpretation. So that's principle number one. You know, another Scripture that we need to take into consideration would be Romans 3 and 4, let God be true and every man a liar. We don't determine what God meant by majority vote. God does not operate through democratic principle. God doesn't say, how many of you believe this is what I meant? And how many of you believe this is what I meant? Okay, majority's right. That's not the way. According to Paul, God's right, period. And if the whole world disagrees with God, it doesn't matter. God's right. That's why when people tell me, well, look at all the churches that baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if every church did it that way. If the Bible says something different, God's right. And every church is wrong. Let God be true and every man a liar. So that's, that's principle number one. And like I said, I believe the most important principle. Principle number two is let Scripture interpret Scripture. I'm a firm believer in what is called sola scriptura. That means only Scripture. By that, what I'm talking about is there is no other source of absolute truth. I don't care about denominational writings. I don't care about televangelists. I don't care about radio evangelists. I don't care about gospel crusades and men who had thousands come listen to them. None of that determines what is true. And, and I say that because I've had people say, well, so-and-so teaches it this way. But it doesn't matter how so-and-so teaches it. We want to look to the Scripture. And the reason we do, John 17, 17, Jesus said, Thy word is truth. This much we know, the word of God is true. Every jot, every tittle, which in case you don't know, those are basically little breath marks in the Greek language, very small markings. 
And so when Jesus said that every jot and tittle, or not one jot or tittle, would pass away, that's what he's saying. Even the little breath marks, even the smallest markings, it'd be like the dot above an I for us that are English speakers. You know, when you dot the I's and cross the T's, it's the same idea for us. And Jesus said even the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T is not going to pass away when it comes to the Word of God. It's absolutely settled. His Word is forever settled in heaven. So if we want to know truth, the only real source that we can be sure about is the Bible. We can go to commentators, we can look in their Bible dictionaries, but none of that gives us an absolute guarantee that it's right. The only way we can be sure that we're interpreting a scripture properly is to do it with the use of other scriptures. You know, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture. Of course, that phrase, inspiration of God, literally means it's God-breathed. And then he goes on to say that all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So all this, it's all profitable. Every scripture, every scripture is divinely inspired. So if we want to determine what a scripture means, what better place to look than another scripture? And I can promise you, I learned this very early in my pastorate. I, I gave my testimony on a face the truth. It's been a few months ago now, I guess, several weeks at least. And I mentioned, I started pastoring at the age of 24. When I became a pastor, I was trying to teach the church through the book of 1 Corinthians and ran across a scripture that I could not figure out what it meant. And I went to the commentators, and what the commentators were saying was against everything the scripture said. I couldn't find anybody that could really explain it to me. And so I began to pray. And as I prayed, God brought to mind certain other scriptures that when I looked at those scriptures, it brought clarity to the one in question. And then I understood exactly what this passage in 1 Corinthians actually meant. So I'm telling you that anything that we don't understand in the Bible, if we'll take the time to search the scriptures, we can find another passage that will explain it to us. It's all there. It's all there. God wants us to understand the scripture. He wants us to know what it means, but we have to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Principle number three is consider the law first mentioned. By that I mean, and we talked about this some when we were talking about usage and context and some of these other tools, precedents we brought up in particular. You want to consider what's the first time that something appears in the scripture. Because the first time it appears, God's going to tell us something about that subject that he might not tell us anywhere else. He's going to give us some clue into that subject in the first mention that we may not find in any other passage. I use the example of Genesis chapter 1, which obviously the first book of the Bible, first chapter of the Bible, we find the story of creation. And in that story, we find that God created certain things on certain days. On day one, he separated light from darkness. He divided the waters above and the waters below on the second day. He separated the land from the sea on the third day, created the stars, the sun, the moon on the fourth day, created sea life, 
and birds on the fifth day, created land animals and man on the sixth day, and then rested on the seventh day. And we know all that strictly from Genesis chapter 1. But there is not another place anywhere in the Bible where those specifics are listed again. There are scriptures that talk about how God created the world. There are scriptures that say he did it in six days and rested on the seventh. But there is nowhere else in the Bible that tells us what God created on what day, except Genesis 1. In that first mention, God gave us all the details we needed to know. Now, just because we come along, for instance, Hebrews 11 and 3, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Well, think about that. That doesn't say that God created the world in six days. So do we then throw away what we read in Genesis chapter 1? Because, well, here's a passage where it's not brought up. Here's a passage that doesn't say that he created the world in six days. It just says that he did it through the word of God. So can we throw away Genesis 1 just because we find a passage that doesn't specifically mention how he did it, how long he took to do it, what he did on each day? Well, of course we can't. The principle of first mention is that whatever we learn in that first appearance of that subject, we are expected to carry that through every time it comes up. One of the places this is important is in the subject of speaking in tongue. Because how many times have either of you tried to talk to someone about speaking in tongues and they'll go find some passage in Acts? Well, they didn't speak in tongues here. Well, they're doing the same thing I just did with Hebrews. They're finding one passage that doesn't give the specifics and think that negates everything that's been said up to that point. It doesn't. What was said in the first mention, and what was the first mention of receiving the Holy Ghost? Acts chapter 2, the first time anyone received the Holy Ghost. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. So the first mention gives us this detail that's not necessarily found in every situation where someone receives the Holy Ghost. But we can't throw away the detail because it was included in first mention. If first mention had not included it, then we might have some debate. But first mention makes it very clear what happened when they received it. And therefore, we can expect that to be the standard for every time anyone receives the Holy Ghost. So that's principle number three. And then principle number four is that we should always require more than one witness. Now, that's been a biblical standard for centuries. It was in the Old Testament. In fact, this principle itself is established by more than one witness. The book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17, 6, talks about the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19, 15 says that there has to be two or three witnesses. Matthew 8, 16, Jesus said, take with you one or two more that are witnesses. John 8, 17, Jesus said the testimony of two men is true. 2 Corinthians 13, 1, Paul said in the mouth of two or three witnesses everywhere. I'm saying that this principle of requiring two or three witnesses has two or three witnesses. So even the principle itself is backed up by that principle. This is something we should always, always require. When we are trying to determine a doctrine, trying to determine what a scripture means, then we should always be able to find at least one more witness that says the same thing 
If we cannot find at least a second witness, the scripture's not wrong. Our interpretation is wrong. We should always be able to find at least one more witness that will verify for us what it is that we say a verse means. The example, of course, Matthew 28, 19. Jesus said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. I've asked this question literally around the world at this point. Where is the second witness? If Jesus meant use these words, just show me in the Bible one more witness that that's what he meant. And nobody can find that witness. It it doesn't exist. There's nowhere else in the scripture where there is a second witness. But I provide for them seven witnesses that say baptism should be in the name of Jesus. So that doesn't make Matthew 28, 19 wrong. It means the way they're interpreting it is wrong. It should be interpreted exactly as it's written when Jesus said baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And that name is Jesus. So that's where this comes into play. We we need to understand Scripture is written in such a way that part of truth may be in one place and another part of it could be in another place. Isaiah said precept must be upon precept, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. That's the way the Scripture is. And most of the time, people end up just grabbing one portion of something as they do in Matthew 28, 19. And they want to stick on that. Or as they do in John three sixteen, just believe, just believe. That's all I want to hear. You know, they love to go to Acts 19. Uh, I'm sorry, Acts 16. And Paul telling the jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But they don't want the rest of the book of Acts. That verse they love. The rest of it, yeah, we're not that interested in. You can't just grab one little part of it and build your doctrine. I, I like to use the, the example. There was a poem written many years ago, and I won't take the time to read the poem, but it's a very interesting perspective that talks about six blind men that were taken to an elephant, and they were asked to describe the elephant. And so, you know, they haven't seen one. They were all born blind. They don't know what it looks like. The first one is feeling the elephant's side. And so he says, well, the elephant's like a wall. Because that's the only perspective he's got. That's what he's feeling. So the second one then feels the tusk. And he says, oh, no, no, no. An elephant is like a spear. Because that's what he's feeling. That's the one part that he's finding. Another one feels the squirming trunk. And says, this is like a snake. And then there's one that grabs the elephant around the leg. And he said, oh, this is, this is a tree. That's the best way. An elephant's like a tree. And then another one grabs an ear. And says, this is like a... A fan, uh, you know, one of these big palm fans. And, and then another grabs his tail and says, oh, this is like a rope. Well, you know, none of them were completely wrong, but none of them were completely right. They had here a little and there a little. And you had to put the whole thing together to understand what the elephant really looks like. This is where so many people come up with so many false doctrines because they grab that rope of a tail and start swinging from it and that's all they know about it and they don't want to look at any other portion they don't want to look at any other passage because this fits me you know i've i've often said that 
for too many people. The Bible says the word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. But for too many people, they want to use the Bible like a drunkard uses a lamppost. A drunkard's not interested in the illumination that comes from that lamp. He's just trying to support himself and stay upright. And that's the way a lot of people use scripture. They're not looking for illumination to see where God wants to take them. They're just trying to find a scripture they can hang on to so they can make their position stand upright. So that's it. That's good. So you've, you've taught these principles all over the world. And you've had many of these conversations with Trinitarians, people who do not believe what we say is, and the Bible says, as truth. Do you find that they challenge the principles just as uh, vehemently as they would the Scripture? Do you find that maybe they go against, when they find there is no out, when Scripture just truly does not back up their case, do they then attack the principle and say, you're just putting something personal to it? But then you just showed us that the principles are biblically based. Um, so I guess my question is, do they go after the principles whenever they find that there is no out? They, they, they have to admit they're wrong, or they have to find an area that they can say, that's your personal opinion. You know, it's interesting. I, we teach this principles of Bible interpretation before we ever get into any doctrinal points for that very reason, because we want to get them to agree. We want to make sure they're on board that what we're telling them, this is all biblically based so that they all are in agreement that this is right. Yes, you can trust these principles. And then when we get into things that they don't like, they do find themselves in a corner. I haven't yet had any of them attack the principle. What they do at that point is usually try to find an exception. They want to find some way to get around what the scripture's saying. With baptism, invariably, invariably, someone will ask me about, what about a person on their deathbed? What about a person in prison? What about a person? All of these examples... So it has nothing to do with the principles. It has nothing to do with the scripture. Right. They want to start appealing to emotion. They want me to suddenly put on a robe and ascend to the place of judgment and say, that person's going to hell. And then they'll just write me off as a lunatic. They want to find some exception. The other option is if I say, well, okay, that person doesn't have to. Then in their mind, well, if they don't have to, none of us have to. If there's an exception for one, there's an exception for everybody. So they, at that point, throw the principles aside, throw the scripture aside, and the only thing they have left is emotion. And that's what they start appealing to. Of course, my response to them when these questions come up, I I had one ask one time. Now, I was in Africa, all right, southern Africa of all places. And someone asked, what do you do about the people in, in countries where all the water is frozen. And I just smiled and I said, um, let me just remind you, we're in Africa and you don't have that problem. That's right. So you're not asking because you care about them. You're asking because you're trying to find a way out of this. Right. I'm not preaching to them today. I'm preaching to you. And the question is not what do they have to do. The question is what will you do? with what you've heard. And the same thing applies. If they want to talk about someone on their deathbed, then again, I'll just smile and say, you know, I don't see any of you on your deathbed. You're sitting here in this conference. You all 
usually they've eaten very well while we've been there. We've fed yeah. them well, and they all seem to be very healthy, and this is not an issue of you being on your deathbed. So why are you asking this question unless you're trying to find an excuse or appeal to emotion? It's not about them. And, of course, the beautiful thing is when it comes to deathbed, I can give the testimony of my own grandmother, who at 77 was pronounced, not pronounced dead, but the doctor said she wouldn't live but a few hours. And God raised her up because while she was in that supposedly comatose state, she heard the doctor say she's going to die. And she knew she wasn't ready to meet God. And she couldn't say anything out loud but she made a commitment to God in her mind. If you'll get me out of this hospital, I'll go to church. I'll receive the Holy Ghost. I'll be baptized in Jesus' name. And God raised her up, and she kept her word. And a few months later, God took her home. So I can give that personal testimony to these people. If someone really, same thing's true if they're in prison, if they're in solitary confinement, or whatever question you want to ask. The, the fact is, if somebody wants to be baptized, God will make a way for them. If they really, really want it, he will always make a way. He did it for the Ethiopian. If you study the book of Acts, you see that Philip met the Ethiopian at the desert. Right. And yet in the middle of the desert, there's enough water for the Ethiopian to be immersed. Where did this water come from? They're riding along in the chariot, and all of a sudden the Ethiopian says, behold, here's much water. Right. You know, he's, he's shocked. He's surprised. Where did this come from? Well, I don't know where it came from, except that God made a way for a man who wanted to be baptized. And if God has to put a lake in the desert, he'll make a way for those that are sincere. So to answer your question, they don't generally attack the principle because they've already agreed to it. And that would make them look like either they're changing their minds or they lied in the first place. They can't attack the scripture because it's laid out in front of them. So the only option they have left is emotion or trying to find some exception. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Brother Hilton, you have anything to add? Well, I was going to ask about the law of first mention. Each of the other principles have explicit scriptural references and basis. Scripture is not of any private interpretation, Second Peter 1 and 20. Let scripture interpret scripture, line upon line, precept upon precepts. And the fourth one, we should always require more than one witness. He provided a number of witnesses for, for even that principle. The law first mentioned seems to be a principle that was observed rather than having an explicit scriptural reference that says, Hey, let's take let's pay more attention to the first time a principle or concept is introduced in scripture. So is that a Judaic like is that something from the history of the word being from the Jews? Where where does that principle come from? And and is it is it just an observed principle? Well, I think to some degree it is observed. I would point out that Jesus used this principle though the scripture doesn't say go back and look at the first time. It is something that we see Jesus doing. The Pharisees came to Jesus. This was in Matthew 19. And they said, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? So they're asking him this question. And you know, the Pharisees were always trying to trap Jesus in everything they said. Jesus answered, 
have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God had joined together, let not man put us under. So when Jesus was asked a question about the scripture, he went back to the first mention. Yeah. Adam and Eve. When God Adam and Eve. Performed the marriage. When God performed that marriage, this is the first mention. And this was the intention of God. So then they want to bring up Moses. Well, then why did Moses allow this to happen? And, and Jesus said to them, is because of the hardness of your hearts. And listen to this. This is Matthew 19, 8. He said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. It's very clear that Jesus is using first mention to absolutely settle this issue in the mind of the Pharisees, who are very keen on Scripture. So hopefully that answers your question. Absolutely. I don't, I don't think you can have any better scriptural basis than the words of Jesus. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who has joined us for today's podcast. We want you to know that we are here to help you in any way we can. If there is anything we can do for you, please don't hesitate to contact us. Send your prayer request to prayer at olathetruth.com. That's prayer at olathetruth.com. If you live in the Kansas City metropolitan area, we invite you to join us for our services this week, Sunday morning at 10, Sunday evening at 6, and Tuesday evening at 7.30. For those who cannot attend, we will provide a live stream on our Facebook page, our YouTube page, and our website, olathetruth.com slash live. Until our next podcast, take care and God bless.